I was raised in an environment where if you spoke altruistically at all about improving people's lives, you were a weakling. You got to go in there. Control, control, control was what it was all about. And you don't have to control. It's like any good salesperson knows that you don't have to know how to sell. You just have to know how to influence. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm joined today by Michael Goldman. Michael started his recruiting career in 1980 and founded his own firm, Strategic Associates, in 1988. Michael's built an excellent reputation as an executive recruiter at manufacturing and supply chain nationwide on both a contingency and a retained basis. Michael is a founding member and former president of the Pinnacle Society. And having run a successful desk for over 40 years and been consistently a top producer, Michael also speaks on and enjoys teaching recruiting tactics and strategies to recruiters globally. Michael, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, you were referred to me by our mutual friend, John Schlegel. Mm -hmm. Um, John's interview was brilliant, so he set a very high bar for you. by the way, as a founding, I, I was curious to know, as a founding member of Pinnacle, did you know Tony Byrne? Oh, yes, very well. Tony and I were old friends. Uh, uh, I knew Tony. I used to have Tony into Austin sometimes. He and I became good friends together. And uh, yeah, he gave me a call out of the blue uh, back in 1989, asking me if I wanted to be part of a, an organization that, they, that, that he was uh, encouraging to uh, be created that would... Um, it would be a source for high-producing recruiters nationwide to get together. We were chafing a little bit at attending some of the, you know, the conferences that we were attending because most of the stuff that was being presented was stuff that, you know, it was it was common at a certain level. It was there was nothing that that stretched the outside of our envelope, so to speak. And so he asked me if I would be interested in helping to to organize a group like that. So uh, of course I said yes and. Uh, the first organizing meeting was in was in St. Louis, which I was unable to attend uh, on my calendar, but I attended the first uh, formal meeting in Houston back in 89 and became the uh, the first vice president. Yeah. Fantastic. That's so cool. I um, So my experience with Tony is I went, I saw him speak. It would have been around 2000-ish, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that. Um, he was really popular here in the UK in like the late nineties and the two thousands. Um, and I also, he produced a fantastic video training, like the, probably the original recruitment video training. Uh, so he had one called the 30 steps in the placement process, which I still have all of his videos, by the way, I (laughs) still have the originals. Yes. (laughs) Awesome. So like I've gone on and done my own kind of take on the 30 steps, um, you know, cause you Really, that stuff is still applicable today. The majority, like I'd say 95% of it is still still relevant today. Oh, yeah. um, so the guy who brought James Can over to the UK and like he actually lived, uh, uh, Tony actually lived over here for quite a while. Yeah. Um, is an entrepreneur called James Can, mm-hmm. who I've also interviewed on the show. And he's gone on to become one of the most successful recruitment entrepreneurs globally. Um, but, uh, yeah, really cool, uh, connection point. So he was a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, I remember he had these like big glasses and he had these, what you guys call suspenders, right? But you need to be careful (laughs) because I don't know if you know this in the U. 
Yeah, well, in the UK, exactly. They're they're called uh, they're called braces because, yes. and braces, you know, what you guys put on your teeth, but That's suspenders it. are garter belts. Ah, okay. So okay. it's a totally different thing, right? It's, yeah. So you you wouldn't go around talking about wearing garter belts. So, um, yeah. So Tony is a one of a kind. How did you get into recruiting? Uh, it was it's a it's a very deceptively simple story. I, at the time, I graduated from college in 1974, and I worked for Prentice Publishers in the 70s. But eventually, in 1980, I became manager of customer service for Charles Loritz Cosmetics in Manhattan. And I was a typical young, um, single guy, you know, working in Manhattan, uh, bachelor pad in New Jersey, tooling around in a Fiat Spider, hanging out at Studio 54. I did the whole disco thing and uh, <laughs> thinking that I could do anything. Um I met a girl in a bar in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, uh, the bicycle club. I'll never forget it. And we were talking at the bar and we were chatting about what she did, what I did and stuff like that. And and, uh, she said, you know, you have a great personality to become a recruiter. I work for Fortune Personnel in Manhattan. Would you be interested in becoming a recruiter? And of course, you know, I was open to anything, especially that evening. And uh, I was full of yeses at, at that time. So I said, sure, why not? I'll, t- I'll talk to them. And within 72 hours, I became a recruiter. I had no, no idea, nothing. I had no knowledge of sales, no knowledge of, of, of um, recruiting or human resources, no knowledge of um, my specialty that they put me on immediately, which was procurement professionals nationwide. I immediately had a nationwide client base. I had no knowledge of something called contingency or retainer or any relationships or anything. I had no training and I underwent very little training. I was sitting at a, a, at a single pedestal desk in a bullpen on, on Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street overlooking the New York Public Library. And it was just a bunch of guys dialing for dollars. It was before, no computers, uh, <laughs> not even a fax. Uh, we had to mail resumes to HR people uh, yeah. to get the referral. So we had to be uh, well trained and saying, "Oh, what can I? What can I? T- I can tell you more uh, about this candidate than what's on the resume. So, what can I tell you that will enable us to set up a telephone interview?" We had rotary dial. We didn't. Even, we had no headsets. It was one of those leaning things, and and you just <laughs> when you wanted to make a referral, you had a hot. You had all your your resume. The resumes were in fortune fold, so you had a. Uh, open up your your file drawer while you're there at your desk. Open it up, read the resume to mark it. I mean, it was really the old fashioned way. Um, Hilarious. Yeah. So. So okay. Wow. I did. When I asked how you got into recruiting, I didn't expect it to begin with meeting a girl in a bar. That's uh, Eileen a different... Kimmel. Eileen Kimmel. All right. Great. She Shout was out wonderful. To Eileen. <laughs> so listen, is this the same Fortune personnel that's now FPC? Yes, it is. Yeah. Ah, that's because I don't know if you know this. I interviewed Jeff Herzog. Yeah. uh, Good guy. And they've asked me to speak. Uh, They have this uh, FPC university. I've spoken there. Yeah, they've asked me to come back. I returned to the the scene of the crime and I I was glad (laughs) to to contribute to the place where I first planted the seeds of being a recruiter. Jeff's a great guy. It's a great organization. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So- you, since you brought it up and you talked about like what it was like uh, in the early days of your career, mm-hmm. um, I in in my coaching group we have members in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, and I and they learn a lot from each other. You've been doing this for forty years. What do you believe that younger recruiters can learn from the veterans and and also vice versa? 
Um, I'd say that it's understand what it means to bring value. Um, too many people get into this business uh, as a license to print money. And they, they don't understand how to articulate that holy grail, that idea. And that is, what value do we bring? What do we do for a living? You know, why should people deal with us? I'm, I constantly got questions from people when I was in training events. Um, and, and they should be able to understand how to articulate the value we bring to an organization and their purpose in being in this business. For so many years, I was in the business to make money. Um, and it was a constant, you know, dying for dollars. Want to buy chicken, want to buy chicken, want to buy chicken, want to buy chicken. As opposed to understanding the, the roots, the philosophy of what we do and, and how we can Im improve people's lives. I was raised in an environment where if you spoke altruistically at all about improving people's lives, um, you were a weakling, you know. You were, you were, you know, where's your strength of, of being a recruiter? You got to go in there. Control, control, control was what it was all about. And you don't have to control. It's like any good salesperson knows that you don't have to know how to sell. sell. You just have to know how to influence. That's basically what it is. So if you can understand the, the, the purpose of what, why you're in this business, what value you can bring, and how to influence people rather than having to sell, 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 I think that will give people young in this business an opportunity to build the roots of success for the long term. It's great to hear you say that. And I'd love to learn more about what, you know, your thoughts are on our purpose of what we do and the value we bring. <clears throat> I remember an organization, like when I first started recruiting, it was in 1997. And the first guy who interviewed me, great guy. And I'm still in touch with him on Facebook to this day. I learned a huge amount from him. But then I was interviewed by one of the other business directors um, who I don't still speak to. And he said something to me, which really jarred me. He said, you know, to be a good recruiter, you have to be good at manipulating people. <laughs> and that was his belief. That was the way he operated. Yeah. And, um, and that really, that put me off. In fact, that almost made me think, nah, I don't know if this is for me. Cause that just yeah. didn't sound like me, but I've come to, understand the difference between, and that was the way he did it, yeah, but um, I, I think there's a difference between manipulating and influencing. And, you know, to me, I don't want to manipulate people, but I think you can influence people in positive ways. So yes. um, could you elaborate a little bit on this idea of, you know, understanding the value we bring to clients and candidates? Sure. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, what we are capable of doing, we understand, we're sort of like, um, you know, people have um, doctors they go to, especially now, you know, in the past 18 months, doctors that handle their, their medical uh, parts of their lives, attorneys that handle the legal part, financial planners that handle certain niches of their lives. Um, they have certain, some have life advisors, some have mentors or something like that. Uh, all those different pieces of people's lives when you tie them all together, what's the one thing about a person's life that impacts everything? Their financial health, their physical health, their mental health, just about everything. It's their career. career. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I came up with this whole idea of being sort of a career consigliere. What better person can you have in your life than someone who understands what you do for a living, who understands the, the influences, the ebbs and flows of the marketplace, and how that, that hidden body, that marketplace, 
uh, is constantly looking at you. Whether you're actively looking or not, it doesn't matter. Looking for another opportunity. And most people go to all the wrong people for advice in their careers. They go to their next door neighbor, neighbor's uncle's babysitter because he happens to run a business. They, you know, they go to a relative, they go to a friend. They even go to their peers or their colleagues. And I'm here to tell you that over all these years, I'd say there's probably about 80% of the people that I've spoken with have no earthly idea how to create a, a short and long-term career strategy. And the way you find that out is by asking a simple question of anybody that you're talking with. What's your career? What's your five-year career vision? If you ask that question, you'll see that most people either have no answer for that. That's probably about 70%. I'm not quite sure because I'm too busy doing what I do now. Uh, some will say, well, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going to be in five years. But it's not well thought out, and it doesn't match marketplace reality. Or maybe 1% will say, this is what I see myself doing in five years professionally, and it's right on the money, and it fits within marketplace reality. Most people don't have that input. So going back to your original question, where we can provide the greatest value is providing expertise, a, a counsel, if you will, to help guide people, not just in where they want to get to from point A to point Z, but how to put tools and tactics and strategies together to get to that point. We're not about just, you know, as you said earlier, we're not about trend, transactionally being traffic cops and sending out resumes and setting up interviews. The, the better among us, the more self-fulfilled among us are ones that can tap into what will help motivate people for success. And it's not just on the candidate side, it's on the client side too. Because how many times have recruiters in our business uh, started working on a, a job job order or a position uh, opening or something for a client? And it's, okay, we'll send you a, a position description and send us resumes when you have them. That's a transactional recruiter. And it's unfortunate because so many in our industry reinforce that image because we're, we participate, so many of the recruiters participate in those transactional conversations. And so people who are more consultative in our business We'll constantly have to fight that image, that, that sort of oppression, yeah. if you will. But instead of just saying, well, no, I don't just send resumes. Let's, let's, um, I can help you sort of build a brand for your opportunities so that you'll be more successful in attracting the best and brightest in the marketplace. And that's a new concept for most clients out there. You know, they're, they're not, they don't know what you're talking about. And that's why one of the things, one of the values that we bring to people, I think, uh, is helping to understand the concept of branding and how to materially integrate that into their career thinking, their strategy and their tactics, and how to help clients sort of bring that branding uh, approach to their op opportunities within their organizations. So, I mean, that's a long answer to your short question, but there are more components to that, to that answer, but I'll let you go on with other questions. <laughs> I did a poll on LinkedIn recently to find out what fee percentage recruiters charge, and it confirmed what I'd learned from speaking with so many recruiters every day. The majority of recruiters are undervaluing their service and cutting their fees to become more competitive. Listen, if you want to protect your cash flow and build reserves to protect your business against whatever might happen in the future, you need to be earning more for each placement, not less. The challenge, of course, is how to increase your fees and still be competitive. iIntro has helped hundreds of recruiters 
to make small but critical adjustments to the way they pitch and win business so they can win more clients who are also willing to pay higher fees. For example, one of their clients typically earned 5,000 pounds per placement. But just a few weeks after working with iintro, she won a new piece of business on a retainer. So in other words, she got a deposit and her fee was an incredible 20,000 pounds, four times her average. If you'd like to see how iintro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained and book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you're a listener of the Resilient Recruiter podcast, iintro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount off any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. Just recap how we got here. I asked you about differences between like old school recruiting versus new. And, mm-hmm. and your answer actually was that this is a constant theme that it runs through in any time. Mm-hmm. Recruiters need to understand yeah. how to the real value they bring, how to articulate that. And it comes down to being more of a counselor or conciliary, both for the hiring company Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. terms of um, their employer brand and packaging their opportunity Mm -hmm. to attract the best and brightest, as well as on the candidate side to help them to create their five-year career strategy Mm -hmm. and also to understand their own value and brand and, and proposition that they're bringing to, you know, help secure a better um, career opportunity for themselves. So have I recapped that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Effectively? Yeah. So, um, okay. I see two challenges. One is internally for the recruiter and one mm-hmm. the other is externally with the customer, be it the client or the candidate. Mm-hmm. And in making this transition. So if I am listening right now thinking, Michael, this sounds brilliant. I totally want that. That's what I would like to be. But um, clients don't seem to let me be that. They, they like, I don't want to be a transactional recruiter, but, you know, this is what the market is pushing me in this direction and clients are uh, expecting me to work in a certain way. So how do we break out of that and then reposition ourselves in the mind of the client as the person who, can partner with them and be that advisor rather than just a you know someone sending resumes. Well, it depends on who you're talking with too, and a mm-hmm. client. If you're dealing with HR, that's mm-hmm. a different animal, of course, than the hiring authority. <clears throat> the hiring authority has much more incentive to making sure that they 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 can brand their opportunity. Uh, and but the way I, I approach it there uh, with HR, you know, it, basically, and this has been I've seen this from the beginning of my career. Human resources as an organization has been one of the most um, abused internal operational organizations in an enterprise. And and the an old Italian saying, uh, roughly translated, means says um, the fish stinks from the head. And when you have people at the top of an organization with an attitude toward HR and talent acquisition that is transactional. It permeates the organization, uh, and that's unfortunate because you know they spend organizations spend so much money in in investing in quality in the product that they market to an organ to to the marketplace, in marketing that product, in building the product, in the in in raw materials and and everything involved in getting that product to market and influencing customers to buy it, but they take they take a very they take just the opposite attitude 
in dealing with their talent. Uh, they should take every their whole attitude about their product and transfer that into their talent acquisition mentality. So if I'm sitting with an HR person, they're paid to to find people. And 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 so they assume so the operational leadership thinks that, oh, our HR people are paid to do stuff like that, to what to do what you do. And I said, well, there's a misnomer about that. That that isn't true. That isn't reality. Uh, and I tell I say say to them something that Danny Cahill, who's a good old friend of mine as well, is a great guy and, and brings phenomenal insight into the marketplace. But he also he said one time, I'll never forget this. He says, the misnomer is that people think we're paid to find people. We're not. We're paid to get them. And getting talent is far different than finding them. You can go to LinkedIn, you can go to Indeed, you can go to all kinds of sources. And so, so when I say to HR, I said, you know, you pay your HR people to, to provide a very valuable service, and that's to identify people. We understand how to get them. We understand that that unique conversation that has to be has to take place to create the credibility in the counsel relate counseling relationship to influence talent that's not actively looking. Because if you're only going to the same resource of people who are constantly out there looking, you're indulging in one to buy a chicken, one to buy a chicken, one to buy a chicken. Whereas we're sitting with people to quali- to really quantify them and really understand how what their career vision is, help them build it if they can, and help them to understand how that vi- how your opportunity fits within that vision. So there's motivation on both sides to make a relationship happen. So I go to HR and, and I'll, and I'll ha- have the same question for both sides. And I'll say, listen, you mind if I throw you a curveball? I know you might not have heard this from a recruiter at all. I said, but um, you know, I can, I can help you do just something differently and to look at your, I can help you make a bit of a sea change in how you present the op- your opportunities to the marketplace because there's a war for talent out there. And the war for talent takes place, believe it or not, regardless of what the market, how, you know, what the, what the economy is doing. Right now, it is definitely a war for talent. You know, you're not for sure. getting, you're not getting the ear of, of people who, um, who are passively looking or who are not actively looking. And if you're satisfied with just considering a talent that's, actively looking, that's up to you, but that's only a small part of the marketplace. So if you want to proactively have the ear and the attention of people who are um, who are passive or or not actively looking, then I can then what I would suggest to you is that you think about how you can properly brand your opportunity, whether you work with me or not. How do you brand your opportunity? How do you present it to the marketplace? So it'll it'll appeal to those that you're trying to appeal to. We're sort of like the A caliber talent. Because if you don't, you'll just keep on get buying those chickens and, and nothing will change. And that's how you can best demonstrate your value as an HR professional to that to your internal operational leaders. And on the higher authority side, I, I, it's easier to open a conversation like that because what I do is I quite, I said, you know, how you market and how you brand the products you bring to the marketplace. And since I'm in manufacturing, it's, you know, mm-hmm. they're very primed for that. But it's whether That's it's a great a, analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's a product or service, take how you perceive, how you think about you bringing your product or your service to the market. And let me help you provide do a sea change of taking that that thought process and applying it to to talent acquisition and how you're thinking about it, how you're you're setting that up. And one of the best things about my conversation with you that will take place and how I can guide you is it's free. 
I don't charge you for that time. It's all part of our collaboration and helping you to actually identify and influence the talent to to want to buy in on a, on a dialogue with you about, you know, what you're doing. Because an interview process is a voyage of discovery. It should be a fun opportunity. It should be an opportunity for people to get together and talk about how they can bring value to each other's lives. You know, to identify where is the mutual shared value among us. It, it's not about this classic, you're hiring, you know, I'm a candidate, you know, the power struggle that takes place, the self-perceptions about I'm giving you my resume, so I need to prove to you why you should hire me. And you're a hiring authority, so you, so you I, so, you know, it's that, it's that old tennis match. Break the mold on that. It's about a bunch of people getting together where they can talk about how they can bring value to each other's lives. I'm in a unique position and I have unique experience in how to position both on the candidate side, uh, how they position their brand, how they think about, how they articulate bringing the value to the market, and the client side, how they can bring their opportunities to the market and how they are, can articulate that value. I mean, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it? no, I'm with you 100%. Um, I love the distinction between, you know, finding talent versus getting talent totally makes sense. And, and is, you know, talent sourcing versus engagement and getting people's attention and getting them involved in a process and open to hearing about what your client can bring. Those are two totally different things. Clients and competitors can all see the candidates on LinkedIn, but getting them involved in what you have to offer is a that's hard that's that's where our skill and strategy comes in and the value that we bring so totally agree with that and then I, I loved your analogy of you know companies how much they invest in manufacturing and marketing their product versus how much effort and investment they make in um, building, their, their teams and, and going after talent, they're accessing talent. Uh, absolutely great analogy. In fact, I, um, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, my sponsors, iIntro. Um, I went to, uh, they did a, a, I was asked to speak um, at an event called the Retained Recruiter Academy, which they were hosting. And one of the comments that one of their team members made really resonated for me. It's a question that he asks clients when he wants to present a retained recruitment solution to them. And the question is, you know, in the last 30 years, how has your industry changed? And, you know, and the client then talks about, wow, there's been so much change. You know, there's been innovations in technology and, you know, manufacturing processes and quality. And they elaborate on all the ways in which their industry and their company has changed and evolved. And then he says, Okay, now tell me, how has your hiring process evolved and changed over the last 30 years? And of course, they're like, well, it hasn't that much. Yeah. Aha. Well, could this be a problem? You know, yes. you've evolved in, in the way you build, market and sell your, you know, market your services. Exactly. But your hiring process is completely outdated. Yeah. Um, so I think that fits well with your with your analogy. Um, I can share. By the way, yeah, go for it. Interrupt, but I can share with you what I literally tell people and advise people to say if they're dealing with a contingency client and want to switch yep. to retain. And it crosses okay, all the lines it. of what just what we just discussed. And that is, 
the reason why we should be working on a retained basis right now is because the best and brightest out there who are not actively looking, one of the first questions that they'll ask me when I talk to them about an opportunity is, has your client retained you? They'll ask this question. And if I can say yes, it'll, it'll, it'll reflect that, that you as, as a talent acquirer have planted a flag and committed revenue defining the best and brightest as opposed to, oh, well, we'll just take a look around. So what's really happened in this marketplace, especially, is that our financial relationship between you and I, it really controls the level of interest that the best and brightest have in the opportunity. So if we work on a retained basis, that will increase your opportunity and the credibility you have in the marketplace to actually gain the attention of the best and brightest in the marketplace. Love it. That's brilliant. Um, just uh, to follow up on my previous comment, it was Paul yeah. Hickey. I had a mind blank temporarily uh-huh. there. It was Paul Hickey who came up with this brilliant question to sow the seed in the client's brain that, mm-hmm. hey, hang on a second, maybe we should update our recruiting and talent access process. So this is gold, Michael. Like, Let's let's dig into this. The sure. um trying to convert a contingent client to retainer. Right. And you made one very strong argument. What what other um, points do you think we can bring to the table to help the client understand why this is actually going to serve them better yeah. than going down the contingent route? Well, one of the things I don't do is what a lot of people do. And that is, well, it'll, if we're retained, then I can spend more time and resources on supporting the search. They really don't care yes. about that. You know, you're okay. either going to work on the search or not. They don't want to make it easier for you and your calendar. Um, and that's a big mistake a lot of firms make. The biggest thing I do is use this tool, this, you know, people will do, it's that pain pleasure principle. Anthony Robbins uses mm-hmm. it all the time. People will do what they perceive brings them more pleasure, what helps them most, where they get the most value. That, that's at the root of everything. Sure. And so in talking to a client about an opportunity they have, very often, I mean, I, I'll start at six figures as far as, you know, retain search is concerned, but I've had retainers at, you know, 70, 80, and 90K as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's all tied to what will gain them the ear of the most qualified talent in the marketplace and what will, will set them up with the prestige of doing business in a certain way, of, in, of being able to carry the flag of investment to the talent acquisition marketplace. We're not just guessing at things. We want to invest in things. When you want to invest in the best um, raw materials to put your product together, you're going to make a decision as what, as to whether or not, especially we deal a lot in the medical device arena. Uh, by all means, they do not sit down at a conference room table and say, okay, what's the cheapest material we can use for our, our, med- our knee implants? They're going to go for, you know, what's the highest quality so we can market our product as the highest quality. It's the same concept. You bring that concept to your talent. We want to invest in finding the best and brightest and, and getting them. Uh, and so part of what will bring value to you in that process is if I can tell people in the marketplace that you've retained us. Now, let's say, for instance, they have this, as some firms do, we don't do, we don't do retainers. Okay. All right. Then what I suggest is an alternative. I'd be willing to consider an engagement fee as retaining our services. So an engagement fee would encompass maybe about 10K up front or something of that nature, or the first third of, of, a, of a fee, and applying that to the final fee that we charge you. But at least I'll be able to say that we've been engaged by our client to identify the talent. So that's the second, and I've done a lot of engagement fees as well. Um, so that's sort of 
once they, if they can't get past the logic of where it brings value to them, then I have to reevaluate what their thought process is. Is this just going to be a, another clerical contingency, a transactional contingency arrangement? I don't get any any benefit from that. I don't, you know, it doesn't float my boat, so to speak. So I'll, I'll be deciding whether or not I actually want to work on it or not, whether I want to deal with it. What's the relationship going to be? Same thing with candidates on the candidate side. Same questions I ask about evaluating the quality of the candidate, evaluating the quality of the client relationship as well. Love it. Absolutely. So a few insights there. One was... Uh, um some clients have a mind block to the, the concept of retainer. And if you have this engagement as another option, it can be an easier thing for them to get on board with, um, right. you know, and especially because it's, okay, it's a, it's a down payment basically, but it still is largely success oriented. Um, so that's a, good, that's a good one to sort of offer as a way of finding some common ground there. Yeah. The other thing I liked is um, the just psychologically coming to this conversation with the mindset that I'm in the same way as we evaluate candidates from behalf of clients to decide who we're going to present. You're evaluating them as a potential partner and whether or not you even want to work with them. And exactly. I think recruiters often are so, you know, desperate to just they just want to win the business that they're willing to yes. um, compromise yeah. the yeah. way that they work in a, in a way they know is not optimal, yeah. um, which is going to then affect the level of service they're able to bring and the likelihood of success yeah. to the customer. Why, why do that? Why not just yeah. only work with the clients that you are aligned with? And the others are source companies because you can't work with any, everyone anyway. Exactly. So- Let's let's be thoughtful about the companies that we're we're uh, taking on as as clients, especially in the market yeah. now where it's so yeah. candidate focused that um, you know I, I've I've got clients telling me they've got twenty thirty you know open orders and uh, you one person can't do that many searches all at the same time, so we're going to prioritize, of course, and. Mm -hmm you know, why not work with the clients who you can allocate that premium level service to? I'll, I'll give um, you an example of the extreme yeah. of something like that. And the sure. extreme just happened recently, as a matter of fact. I was contacted by, by a candidate who I placed a number of years ago at one of the major medical device firms in a senior level quality role. And he was being, the new management team coming out, he was being let go. And I, I always, I agreed to work with him to market him. So, um, I contacted a, one of the major medical device firms that had an opening for VP of regulatory and quality. And I got to the, the hiring executive EVP and I asked him if he'd be willing to take a look at this fellow's resume. Uh, and he said, oh, we already have candidates involved. I said, well, you know, it doesn't hurt you to look. So he said, okay, sure, send it over. Uh, so I sent the resume over and he got back to me and he said, listen, I looked at his resume but I understand we're looking at some very qualified candidates and, you know, working with a recruiter just wouldn't be in the, uh, possible right now. And I said, OK, I'm going to tell you something that you have never heard in your life from a recruiter. I'm willing to make the referral on a pro bono basis. I know this candidate very well, this guy very well. I've known him for a number of years. I placed him where he is now. Change of management team, it happens. Um, but I'm willing to make the referral. Won't cost you a penny. I'll set up a, an exploratory phone conversation. And... 
If that works out well, then the only thing I ask you that you do, and I'd never worked with this firm before, is that if this works out well, I'd ask that you you uh, introduce me to HR with the purpose of opening up a working relationship with the firm as a client. And he said, that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> I said, you're right. I never heard that from someone before. I mean, this is like a six-figure guy, and I was pro bonoing on a on a full on a fee like that. So I made the referral. He phone interviewed with the with the hiring authority. I wish I could say he was hired and everybody was happy, but he decided that he wasn't as qualified as the other. But he said, I'm so impressed with what you did with with the caliber of your professionalism and and your ethics. I'm going to refer you over to HR and ask them to set up a relationship with you. So thinking outside the box where you're not just driven by the almighty dollar is something that's so imperative for especially new recruiters to 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 strive toward. I understand you want to make a buck in this business and prove to yourself that you can do it. And I remember the years where we were constantly talking, especially at pinnacle meetings, this is how much I made. This is the identify yourself by the dollars in your value, as opposed to, you know, the, the value of, of your, whose lives you've impacted. So I would advise new recruiters to be thinking that this is, this is where you want to strive toward doing things like this, if you know what I mean. Brilliant story. Thanks for sharing yeah. that, Michael. It's interesting because a conversation came up in a, one of our coaching meetings recently. A gentleman was feeling um, disgruntled, to put it mildly, because yeah. it, he felt like a client had um, cheated him yeah. out of a fee because um, he had referred somebody and then they, you know, uh, the H... But he hadn't sent the resume and then the HR person contacted the candidate and so on and so forth. You know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, then one of the other ladies in the group, uh, Amanda Brandenburg, who is a really outstanding person and, and top biller herself running a successful firm, said, you know, <clears throat> first of all, you do not need to monetize every single introduction. And number two... Um, Sometimes if they are not able to use a recruiter at this time, but it's a relationship that is worth cultivating, um, it is worth, you know, trying to give them value, even if it's, it, it could be an introduction or it could just be market insight, even though there's no immediate benefit to you, why not give value and then it will come back to you. And maybe not from that exact client, but it will definitely, if you're giving value and trying to be of service to every you know, prospective client, as well as your existing clients, it's going to definitely, you know, come back to you in exactly. some way, shape or form. That's terrific. Before I go to my next question, I'd like to share one of the keys to my success in recruitment and in business. You may have noticed that a lot of the people I interview on this show have a coach. That's not a coincidence. Most high achievers have a coach, including me. I've worked with various coaches over the last 20 years, and it's been a huge factor in my own personal and business growth. Here's why. Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and it really helps to take a step back and look at how you can improve the business and get a fresh outside perspective from someone who's bringing new ideas and insights to the table. Plus, as a business owner, who is holding you accountable and helping you stay on track? So I wanna encourage you, if you're not already working with a coach, get one. It doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of amazing coaches out there. Just find someone who you believe will add measurable value to your business and can help you get to the next level. If you do want to explore a coaching relationship with me, then you're welcome to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. 
This is not a sales call. My number one objective is to help you to get clear on your goals, identify the roadblocks that are holding you back, and create a strategic plan to increase your billings and grow your business. I promise you'll leave our session feeling focused, re-energized, and excited to take your business to the next level. You can apply at www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Challenges. Let's talk about like... (laughs) The fact you've been able to last in this industry for 40 years in itself is an achievement, Michael. (laughs) You know, it's so, it can be so, um, it's a burnout business. You know, there's so many highs and lows and peaks and valleys and, you know, um, frustrations involved. But um, what would you say have been some of the key challenges that you've had to overcome or that you've encountered? One of the chief challenges I've had over many years is overcoming overcoming cynicism. <laughs> you know? Do you mean your a, own cynicism or Yes. Yes. Okay. My own cynicism. Tell me about that. Oh well right. it's like it's like I, I know a lot of guys in law enforcement. I train with uh, with law enforcement professionals and <laughs> military professionals and that's that's a common thing. Cynicism is rampant in the law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, being able to to put a back put negatives negative thought into the back seat and and trying to constantly think in terms of a, a positive outcome I think is mm-hmm. important um, you know and sort of bring an enabling mindset uh, rather than a disabling mindset to a relationship meaning that an enabling mindset is constantly trying to think in terms of how can I make something happen with it without as, as opposed to a disabling mindset which is why should I make something happen I always suggest when I'm prepping a candidate, to bring an enabling mindset to situation rather than disabling. And I try to follow my own rules as well. Um, you know, expecting the most dysfunctional worst from people, you know, and, and when constantly assaulted by people's, stu- excuse me for saying this so blatantly, but people's stupidity, <laughs> you know, um, yep. and ignorance, fear-based thinking, um, having to try to cure them of that because, since 9/11, we've we've existed in a in an over almost a near overwhelming fear-based environment. Everything is, generates fear, and and most industries um, uh, market their products and services based on fear. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to look good, you got to smell good, you got to you know <laughs> drive the right machine, you got to do this. You know, otherwise you'll be a failure. The constant. And our political environment, oh, my God. I mean, it's, it's, so much of it is fear-mongering. So much yeah. is, is based on ignorance and fear that uh, we're constantly bombarded with these things. So, you know, I'm part of society. So I'm, I'm, you know, I see these things as well, and I'm bombarded with them just as well. So falling victim to, to ignorance and fear is something. And to counteract that, constantly reading, constantly educating, um, and, and quite frankly, being in this business so long, I mean, this is literally my 41st year in the business. Um, I've seen almost everything. I've gone through so many ups and downs in the marketplace. 9-11 was the most devastating. But even before 9-11, there were, there were downturns before. And to know that even though, I mean, to, to know that you can start fresh from it, uh, with your business at zero. All of our business went away in 9-11. And to know that you can go from zero to 60 in a certain length of time, but just to have to have patience with it and, and to mm-hmm. be your own best friend about it, to know that, you know, this is, uh, this is not the end at any point in time. Mm. It's just it another feel like it, though. it can, it yeah. can feel like it in the moment. Yeah, you can. You've got a, a very 
broad and long-term view on this, Michael, and it's a, it's a valuable perspective. I, I heard Brian Tracy say once that, I'm going I'm to butcher this, but it was something along the lines of, you know, often when you're, we are really hard on ourselves and we're looking at the short term, um, you know, we, we may be in a, in a valley, but we're not looking at the long-term trend. You know, if you compare where you are compared to where you were five years from uh, ago or whatever, and then where you expect to be five years from now, as long as you're making progress and you're moving forward, then, you know, this is just a short-term, uh, a short-term blip and you can recover yes. from that and, uh, and come back stronger. Um, I'll share with you a quote that I got go from the founder of Southwest Airlines that, that okay. has driven me to this day. I cut it out of the newspaper. I saw it years and years ago. I love to do things that scare me because without fear, there is no courage. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think in terms of constant challenges, I, I've been a student for 17 years of something called Krav Maga. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. heard of that I've before. Of that. Yeah, and yeah. I started when I was like 51, 52 years mm-hmm. old. I'm about to turn 69 oh, cool. next month. And at wow, one time, awesome. yeah. And I, I go out on the mat for the past 17 years with kids in their 20s and 30s. I'll get okay. some, I'll be sparring with them. I'll be training with them. Uh, I'm the old, always the oldest guy in the mat. And um, I love to, to trick them. I love to let, let, let them think <laughs> that this old guy's coming out. I would be soft on them, you know, and everything. But I've always come back and I never go down. And I've, I found that um, just by sticking with something, just just by having the attitude that I'm getting, I'm going to get out on the mat. Just by you win, just by getting out on the mat and competing. At one time, yes. I was the oldest black black belt in the state of Texas in Krav Maga, and wow. I mean, I've got I've gone through some really amazing, physically destructive things <laughs> over the years in my training, but I've never given up. And that's the thing: when you're always in the game in some way, understand that that the first step is just you know being on the mat. That's an important thing. And for these yes. kids to know that you're going to get knocked around, you're going to get feel, you know, put down on the mat and you're going to feel like it's, it's the end of, of the session. But as long as you keep on getting up that, you know, I'm a big, I love the Rocky movies. You just keep on yep. getting up and you keep <laughs> on getting up, you know? Absolutely. You know, I, I love that idea of doing things that scare you because otherwise there's no courage. Um, before lockdown, I had just started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. and it scared the hell out of me, Michael, because, yeah. well, first of all, it's scary doing anything new, right? Yeah. Uh, just in general, where you're a beginner and it feels overwhelming and it's a lot of information to take yeah. on board and, and you feel like you're stupid and you don't know anything. That's not a comfortable feeling in itself. But then number two, when you have people trying to strangle you and put you in arm blocks and stuff like that, that is it was scary as yeah. well. And so, <laughs> but that's actually why I did it because I wanted to put myself in a uncomfortable situation because it's a, it's an opportunity for learning and, and for growth. And, um, that's great. what actually, although I only got to do like a few months before COVID hit and then you couldn't be in, you know, doing that, um, mm-hmm. t- hopefully we'll, it will, we'll get back to it soon. But actually, I actually, I actually think even that short time benefited me because the main thing I took away from it is if you've got a person lying on top of you trying to, you know, um, trying to choke you out, mm-hmm. the most important thing is not to panic, right? Yeah. You have to just slow down, Calm breathe, down. 
yep. and stay calm. And then you can think, give yourself room to think about, okay, what, what, what do I do next? Yeah. And then, you know, I'm sure that contributed to me not freaking out when COVID hit and my business yep. in the short term, like took a major hit. Sure. Um, Whereas in the past, I might have overreacted to that situation. I think I was able to keep things under control and 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 bring it back. So wonderful story! Um, Congratulations on getting thank through that you. and taking from thank it what you could. Yeah, yeah, Michael. Um, wow, there's so much we could talk about. One one more thing I wanted to ask sure. you is, um, I believe you've got a solo practice. What made you decide to? go down that road as opposed to building a firm in nine. I was going to build a firm from 19. Oh, okay. In 1988, I was going to build a firm and I was constantly mm-hmm. working on hiring staff, training staff, yep. setting up compensation programs. I did that all up until about up, up until after nine 11, okay. uh, to the point where in 2000, I had as many as 20 people and oh, wow. yeah, my firm was millions in revenue. Um, when nine 11 hit, mm. um, that year, that uh, the year, um, 2002, um, all the business went away all of a sudden, boom, dropped yes. like a stone. Um, my top recruiter decided she didn't like doing this business anymore and decided to get, I had just invested thousands of dollars in moving to an upgraded physical space, wow. invested in new technology, invested in new furniture, everything. Mm-hmm. I was, I was out thousands of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. And she resigned suddenly all of a sudden. My number two recruiter lost his arm in an auger accident in uh, outside of Houston uh, while he was on his his honeymoon. Uh, his desk went south, and I had to keep him on because I paid healthcare for everybody. Yeah. I had to keep my healthcare program to cover him, so because they had to reattach his arm, believe it or not. Oh, so my I, he was home. I was supporting his healthcare. Everybody else was in shock and trauma to the point where yes. I was over leveraged, and I had money bleeding out the back door. Um, And I was trying to train people and I was starting to realize, and over the years I realized that I got into running a business for the wrong reasons. Um, The reason why I got into the business without a plan uh, to build it was because I just wanted people to like me, bottom line. I mean, I have to admit that. I look back at it now (laughs) and I realize that. Yeah, yeah. Like and respect. Have people around (laughs) you who who pray to your God every day. that was the wrong reason. That's not why you build a business. But anyhow, it got to the point where I decided I wanted to get out of the overhead business. And I said to my people, I said, listen, I'll set everybody up in home officing in 2002. And if you can survive working at a home office, that's great. If you can't, you know, God bless you. And so I, I set myself up in home officing with my wife. I met my wife in the business back in 82. So she knew the business. I taught her the business. For six months, I, I slapped her desk up into mine. She and my wife and I faced each other every day for six months, and I taught her how to be a desk running recruiter. And so now we office across the hall from each other. She does oh, the research cool. and whatever. Yeah. But person by person, they all drop by the wayside. They couldn't handle mm-hmm. remote officing. But I've been yes. working virtually since 02. And so, yes. you know, what we just went through was really no challenge for me at all. Um, but every once in a while, I, I get the, the idea of wanting to hire staff and do it again. And my wife got out of ba- would get out a baseball bat and said, do you remember the hell that you went through training people and having to deal with them? I said, why would you want to do it again? You're making money doing this now. You're being your success. Why would you want to spend your time doing that? I have a beautiful grandson that had, comes over, you know, a lot, a lot during the week and he's 12 years old and, you know, right. we are enjoying life. So why do you have to populate yourself in your business with more children? 
<laughs> right. Yes. Because when you're a manager, you're the parent for sure. Yeah. And you run and your you desk. Children. And I've never yeah. stopped running my desk in 41 years. Yeah. So, you know, anybody totally. who wants to understand the ups and downs of, of getting into a business in this marketplace, I'm full of, 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 uh, of ideas and thoughts and uh, what I've learned. <laughs> so, well, that's an awesome that's a different and, subject. And yeah, look, maybe we can pick up on this another time because it's definitely not for everybody and it depends on so like what you want to, out of this business. I think you need yeah. to start with that because and you have to do it for the right reasons and not for ego or or other reasons and think, you know, that um building a firm is the, yes. the be all and end all. Um The E-Myth is a great book to read on yeah, the subject of building a business. It is. I saw him present in Dallas one time and I was Michael he was Gerber. terrific. Yeah, and I, I wish I had read his book before I decided to start the, start the company, uh, because I, awesome. I look back and realize I I did not have any of that in my arsenal when I did that, and that's why I, building a business failed. You know. Well, you know, um, for those again, it's not for everybody, but for those who do want to scale and build a firm, I'm collaborating with another Pinnacle member. Joel Slenning, mm -hmm. and we're creating a program for owners who already have a seven-figure business and they want to scale to eight figures. Mm -hmm. um, so for people who want to check this out, Joel was my guest back on episode 53. He talks about scaling his firm to 16 million and then selling it. He's now building a retained search firm. His first business was a staffing firm. Um, and we're offering a free taster session. You can register for that by visiting recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scale to see if that might be something you'd like to explore. Um, so Michael, if people want to find out more about your work and you know how they can get your help, advice, and, and knowledge, what, what are some steps they can take? Well, actually, I'm going to be a, doing a webinar for Danny Cahill's group, according to Danny.com, on September 15th. And the subject of that will be um, the 21st century branding resume and how to incorporate the idea of branding into passive candidates' thinkings, thinking as well as clients that you're working with. So that'll probably be about an hour to 90 minutes of, and I'll, I'll be, uh, as part of that podcast, the podcast, as part of that presentation, that webinar, I'll also have the actual um, resume that I send out, uh, the suggested format to uh, candidates out there that I help them to create. So uh, everything is loaded right onto the webcast. If you want to attend, go to according to Danny.com and you can sign up right then and there. So just so I'm clear, you're um, presenting to recruiters on how they can be a counselor to their candidates. Yes. And providing them with a suggested resume format. Right. Which enhances the candidate's brand. Yes. Is that the idea? Yes, this is the, a piece of creating. It's a piece that presents immediate value to candidates um, mm. as part of this career consigliere concept that I deal with and, and being a counsel to your to your uh, marketplace as opposed to a transactional recruiter. So this is a piece of where you can bring most immediately that value to them, to that marketplace. All right. So cool. Uh, definitely encourage people to check that out. And of course, find Michael Goldman on LinkedIn. Michael, we, that time has just flown by. I, yeah, it you is. Know, <laughs> I wish we could go for another hour. So thank yeah. you so much for sharing your pearls of wisdom and many, many insights. It's been fantastic. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I hope we'll have a chance to talk again. Thank 
Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.